Welcome to Stats Stories, where we take a deeper look at statistical intrigues throughout professional sports. I'm Chad Shanks, Director of Marketing for StatMuse, also known as an idiot who once got fired for shooting an emoji horse. My name is Justin Cabacco. I am the Director of Statistics for StatMuse, and I created BasketballReference.com. Given how the Warriors are on, seem to be on the verge of starting the NBA's next dynasty, and also with Kobe Bryant riding off into the sunset, we thought today would be a good time to look back into the NBA's last great empire, the Kobe Shaq Lakers that repeated at the turn of the millennium. And here to join us, we have our very first guest for our Stat Stories podcast. You know him from Bleacher Report, one of the best NBA writers out there. Please welcome Mr. Howard Beck. Howard, thank you for being here. Hey guys, thanks. Thanks for that nice, nice uh, intro as well. So Howard has the credentials to pull off a good discussion about, about these Lakers being there and getting a front row seat for, for the action at that time. So for this episode, episode five, we're going to call it The Empire Strikes Beck. Which is appropriate because so, at times I felt like I was being struck during, <laughs> during that empire. <laughs> well, let's start there. Who who was striking you, Howard? <laughs> we want to we want to name names. Well, no, look, it's 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 funny. Um, that you know, we, we always look through rose colored glasses and see you know the past through a different you know prism, right? We remember all the good parts, like wow, I covered this amazing historic championship team that won three in a row. Shaq and Kobe, one of the greatest tandems of all time, two Hall of Famers, Phil Jackson, and yes, like. So I, I remember a lot of that very fondly now, years later, because I'm not in it anymore. But at the time, that was a very st stressful team to cover. Uh, so struck not literally, but figuratively, uh, because there were days. I, I had a running joke. Um, I think I would mostly throw this at John Black, the PR guy for the Lakers, who felt similar stresses that we did being in the midst of, of all the, uh, the tension and insanity there at times, where I would say, you know what, John, one of these days, I'm going to walk to the corner of this gym. This is at their facility in El Segundo. I'm going to walk to the corner of the gym. I'm going to lay down my Laker credential and my recorder. I'm going to walk out the door. <laughs> That's going to be it. <laughs> because there were days where it was just, are you serious? Really? Shaq and Kobe, again? We're doing this again? Um, and, you know, look, I, you know, we're not fans when we cover the team, but you're in this environment where whatever negativity, whatever stress, whatever tension – uh, is there, you can't help but be affected as it is a human being. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there were times where that was just, you know, off the charts and you're riding this roller coaster just as, as they all are. Um, and, you know, not with any stake in it, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether they imploded or not. It was a story either way. And sometimes it's more interesting when they're imploding, but um, it was just more of that, the, the, the tension that you're in the midst of and then dealing with, Oh, okay. Shaq just took another shot at Kobe. Now we got to go to Kobe and ask him again what you know what's going on. Or, or now Kobe's not going to talk to us for a few days. Or Shaq's not going to talk to us. Or we got to you know. Oh my God, J.R. Ryder just became the voice of reason. That happened, by the way. That's a real thing that happened on the Laker beat. There was a day when J.R. Ryder. I think it was only one day uh, in his entire career, probably, where J.R. Ryder was, in fact the voice of reason amidst one of these uh, blowups. Um, and then that, that, that role, the voice of reason role, you know, kind of rotated around. Maybe it was just his turn. Maybe Brian Shaw and Derek Fisher and Rick Fox and Robert Ory were just tired of being, being that voice at that point. But, um, but no, I mean, I, that was so, uh, yeah, if, if the empire struck Beck, that was probably uh, it. Um, it was, but it was, you know, again, on the positive side, 
saw a lot of phenomenal basketball, some really memorable playoff series. Um, and if there's only one, if there's if there's one almost literal striking, uh, it would be the time that Shaq picked me up and threw me over his shoulder. Um, oh wait, no, we got to hear more about this. You can't just like throw that out there and then you know. So no, what, what's the story behind that? So at least once a season, Shaq would like physically just uh, get into it with somebody uh, in, in the media, not in a in like a, a abusive way, but a playful kind of. I'm being aggressive, but I'm still being playful. I'm going to scare you, but I'm not really going to hurt you kind of thing that's, uh, that only Shaq can pull off. Um, my turn with that was we were uh, at, I think it was a practice day or shoot around one day in Dallas. And I don't remember what the back and forth was about, but it was getting, you know, Shaq was a little annoyed with me, I think, and because and, I kept pressing him on something, as I'm apt to sometimes do. And uh, finally, he just <laughs> reached down, picked me up and threw me over his shoulder. So where I was like, I was bent over his shoulder. So like half of me was hanging down his back where my, my hands are like just dangling with my recorder and my notepad and my feet are over his, his front side. Um, and he just kind of, you know, just held me there, walked around a little bit before like finally gently setting me down again. Uh, one of the TV guys out there had said that they'd filmed it. I think it ended up on the news that night. Maybe, I don't know. I, you know, I was back at the, the game that night. So I would have, I would have missed it somewhere. There may well be footage of me, over Shaq's shoulder back in about 2002, three. So, so help paint this picture here. Yeah. You have Shaq, who's what, like seven one three fifty, and and how big are you? Uh, I top out at just slightly under six. It says six feet on my driver's license, so I just go with six feet. Um, sure. And about one hundred and fifty five pounds. So. Um, so this you know, is like like you know like a, a father picking up his little child or something like that. It's pretty much, um, and I didn't see it coming. It was just you know, hey Shaq, this, hey Shaq, that, blah blah. You know him being kind of like, whatever. You know, like just kind of yeah, you know, being a little lightly contentious until finally he just got sick of the conversation and and did that, uh, which I still got off easier than Tim Kawakami. Uh, who was covering the Lakers for the LA Times. I was at the Daily News. He was at the LA Times. And he's covered uh, the Warriors now, correct? He's, he's a columnist for the San Jose Mercury News okay. and, and, that, and that newspaper group. But he does a lot of Warriors stuff, and Tim's one of the smartest guys out there on that team. Um, but Tim was covering the Lakers at the time, and Tim used to get into it with Shaq, and Tim's a pretty aggressive uh, you know, reporter in terms of, of questioning. And Shaq, again, you know, there are days he'll, he'll deal with it and days that he's just kind of – so. There had been like a two-week span where Shaq had been really kind of in one of his moody phases. And every time Kawakami asked him a question, Shaq would say, you know, ask a good question. Ask a good question. <laughs> and would be like, I'm asking great questions. No, you're not. Ask a good question. So this went on for like a couple of weeks. And then finally, one day, Tim asked some question. I can't remember what it was. Shaq looks up, has this look, this like funny look on his face. And he goes, and he, <laughs> this is where we get uh, race, uh, uh, politically incorrect here. Shaq says, he used to call him Kamikaze. Okay, Shaq's yeah. That sounds like Shaq. Yeah. Uh, Kamikaze asked a good question. Kamikaze asked a good question. So he leaps up. He grabs Tim, who just disappears beneath Shaq's massiveness. And he starts pogo-sticking him around the locker room. This is a Staples Center. Pogo-sticking him around the locker room. He's just jumping up and down, holding on to Tim, who is just holding on for dear life until Shaq stops bouncing up and down with Tim wrapped up. How many bones did Tim break that day? Uh, he might have strained a rib or two. Um, well, so that, bring, that brings up a question I want to ask. How, how has covering a team, like especially being on the beat of a specific team, changed since then? Because it seems like if there was footage of Shaq jumping, you know, carrying you around or jumping up and down with a reporter in the locker room, that today yeah. that would be a Twitter storm you know, for, for a whole day and people would 
you know, blow it out of proportion and Shaq would be making an apology and stuff. So, you know, from, yeah. So how, you know, how has covering the NBA or team specifically, you know, changed since, since those days? Yeah. Hugely different. Yeah. Well, by the, by now that, that video would have had crying Jordan pasted on it. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to try to find that video. I, I'm going to spend hours looking for it. I don't know who in Dallas would even, I don't even know which station it was. Uh, the Kawakami one, I don't think was filmed because it was in the locker room. And in general, cameras weren't in the locker room much pregame. They definitely were always postgame. And this is a pre cell phone video uh, camera era. So, you know, you think about it like back then we were all probably carrying like Nokia flip phones or the brick phone or whatever, but nobody had video. So, um, and you can't take still cameras into a locker room, uh, even though now we all do because we have them on our phones. But in that era, with no no Instagram, no Facebook, no Twitter, no means of everybody being able to film anything at any time, that just goes by the wayside. Like those of us who were there remember it and know it well, uh, and 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 that's it. No, you know, there's no footage that would exist. So today, yeah, that would have become a thing. And the next thing you know, you know. Tim would have been, you know, on Twitter having to like, you know, fend off of a bazillion, you know, jokes and, and uh, inquiries and whatever else. And probably radio would be calling up and saying, you know, hey, you know, every station in the country would want him to come on and talk about getting pogo sticked around the locker room. And yeah. I mean, plus just Shaq in the social media age would have just been unreal. Um, he's been pretty quiet on, on Twitter overall. He was, he, he came out, he was one of the first guys on Twitter. Like I got on Twitter literally because Shaq got on Twitter and the times put me on a story back in 2008 or whatever it was, 2009, like Twitter was still really early on and Shaq was one of the first big athletes to get on there and I could see made for him. And that so I had to sign up for Twitter literally so I could familiarize myself with it and do a story on Shaq. That seems like, you know, ancient history now. Um, but yeah, uh, all the Shaq Kobe stuff, the Shaq Kobe Phil stuff, um, all the drama with the Lakers, the the magnification, the amplification uh, in today's environment, I, I I shudder to think of what it would have looked like. Um, I I'm, I think ultimately I'm I'm really glad that I covered them when I did, and I'm actually I'm glad in a lot of ways I don't cover a team now as my beat because I think uh, social media has made it all. Um, harder in a way. Um, I think relationships with players are tougher now than they once were because there's just more media and because they're even more guarded because it's one thing to say something and think, well, this might be in the paper tomorrow morning. It's another thing to say it and think this is going to be online in 30 freaking seconds and everybody's going to be like dissecting the living crap out of it for the next 24 hours. And I think it's made them more self-conscious, uh, the players. And I think it's made, um, I, I think it's kind of made everybody a little bit duller, to be honest. Um, I've thought about this a lot. Like, you know, you think about, you know, I was thinking about it with Gary Payton recently because uh, one of my colleagues at Bleach Report did this, this fantastic uh, mini documentary about Gary Payton and Gary Payton Jr. and, and the, the relationship. And we've got footage of Payton and his son um, playing one-on-one and Payton Sr. is just trash-talking like crazy. And I'm thinking, like, nobody's like this now. It's not that nobody trash-talks. But, like, Payton would say the same things publicly that he would be yammering about on the court. And like those colorful characters, the Dennis Rodman type, I feel like they've all fallen away. And I, I, I don't know why, but I think at least some of this is because of just the, uh, just the, the, the immersion of everyone in media on a 24 seven basis where it forces everybody to be that much more conscious of everything they say, everything they do, what they look like, um, how they carry themselves. And so I think for a lot of guys that that's just made them more careful, um, 
but I'm off on a tangent now. No, the, I I love this tangent, and from from my from my experience seeing, you know, the the social media, which you know gave me a job for a time, but was it makes the players extremely distrusting of yeah. of the media and everyone, and they they it kind of it, from my experience it shows them as the enemy you know that these are the guys that are that are there to catch you and that yeah. every everyone is there for some big gotcha moment or some some big headline that's going to make it on on dead spend right. so uh, yeah it just seems it seems to have completely changed the way media interacts with with players but again i don't know if that's the specific topic our listeners want want to <laughs> hear about but it, it's something i'm very interested in but well, just, just circling back to Shaq and Kobe here, I mean, I think one of the things we forget is, yeah, they had quite a few petty squabbles, which I'm sure you've, Howard, you've documented many of them. But, you know, Kobe was, what, 18 when he came into the NBA? Yeah. And Shaq, even though he had been in the league for a few years, I think he was only like 24 when he joined the Lakers, something like that. Sounds and about so, right. Maybe 25. You know, when you think about their, their ages and how – you know, Kobe never went to college. Shaq was in college for, was it two years? One year, two years? I can't remember. I think it was two, maybe. Anyway, regardless, I mean, they were they were very young. And if you think back, you know, when you were a early 20s, late teens, you probably weren't the most uh, mature person in the world. So I think if we look at it through through that lens, we can kind of understand how how these seemingly little things got blown out of proportion. Yeah, and it wasn't, you know, to be clear, a lot of these weren't little things. Um, there were serious divides between them, and I think, you know, age and maturity or lack thereof all feeds into this. Um, you know, uh, Shaq had three years, by the way, at LSU. I just looked it up. So, he, you know, he's three years at LSU and then four years in Orlando and goes to a finals and loses. So, like, his real-life experience and dealing with teammates, being a leader, all that stuff, I mean, that's that's seven years of college plus Orlando before the Lakers, whereas Kobe comes in as you know, straight up skinny, cocky rookie that Shaq's looking at, going, "Oh, you're you think you're the star of this team?" Um, I mean, he labeled him Showboat on like day one. I don't know if it was literally day one. I started covering them, Kobe and Shaq's second year together, and Kobe's second year in the league. Um, but that Showboat tag, Kobe took great offense to. Um, that oh, was really? not that was not a compliment. Showboat Seems like he not- embraces it now. Um, the concept of it, yes, but also because he can, because, you know, you at this stage of his career. Yeah. But, you know, as an 18, 19 year old coming in, um, who certainly had that attitude about him, that, that, that presence, that, you know, that cockiness and everything, but you still need to be accepted into the group. And that group is all much older than you. And high schoolers hadn't been coming into the NBA, you know, Garnett had the year before, um, and then it's Kobe. So this is still new for players. This is still new to veterans and coaches going, oh, my God, we're getting guys straight out of high school now? You know, it hadn't happened in 20 years until Garnett made the leap. Um, yeah. So quick aside, everybody go buy Jonathan Abrams' book about this. But um, Download it. But so Kobe is, is, you know, he's the unicorn of the time. And on top of that, he's got the attitude of a kid who, you know, might as well have already – been to four all-star games because that's who he was and that's what allowed him to be great. But so being tagged as showboat was tough because it, it was, it was more of a kind of a patting on the head. Oh, you think you're going to come in and own this league as a teenager. Um, and by the way, I'm, I'm the, you know, the most dominant big man ever. And I'm this big, bad, you know, MF or I'm, you know, 
this is my locker room. This is my team. So um, I think Showboat was a way of putting Kobe in his place in a way um, and also highlighting the things that at that time were maybe Kobe's worst traits that he wanted to be the show. And, you know, you got to learn uh, how to play with, with, with your teammates. You got to learn how to win. You got to learn the, the NBA environment. Um, so I, I think it put him in a tough spot because it, it kind of, uh, you know, drew him as a caricature on day one and didn't let allow him to maybe grow into or, or acclimate uh, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, in a different way. Um, you know, they worked through it. They got, they got there. They won three championships. They went to four finals in five years. Uh, but Shaq made it tough on him. And one of the ironies of that relationship, you talk about maturity. I thought from very early on as a, as a beat writer covering this team and just kind of trying to read the room and figure it out. Like you start to realize, Oh my God, the big dude over there, who's like, you know, he's got six, seven years or whatever on the other guy, the, the, the older guy, he's the one who's the, the problem with, got the maturity problem. And not on every level. Kobe had was immature in other ways. But Kobe was the one who was very dedicated, professional in terms of his work ethic, um, who was very serious about the game. And Shaq was the big clown. So the kid, you know, the teenager straight from high school, he was the one who who was the more mature of the two in a lot of ways, I thought. Do you think um, a lot of that came from Kobe growing up with a father who played professionally? I mean, you know, if we want to get into psychoanalyzing, maybe there's that. The fact that he lived, you know, grew up abroad in Italy uh, primarily during his younger years and, and, you know, was a bit of a loner. And, you know, there's there's all these different things that go into that. Um, I, I don't know exactly what goes into, you know, making up that that Kobe Bryant psyche. But that sure. is who he was, a guy who was a perfectionist, who was just insanely dedicated uh, to his craft, tunnel vision. Um, whereas Shaq, you know, wanted to be in movies, wanted to be make rap albums, you know, wanted to do all these other things. And I'm not saying those things necessarily take away from. Him. I thought that was one of those other things that was overdone at the time. Like, oh, he's making an, an album that must mean he doesn't care about his free throws. No, you can do both. But it certainly was the case that Kobe only cared about one thing for the longest time, and Shaq did have uh, other aspirations. Um, and it, it also happens that. Shaq didn't spend as much time in the offseason working on his body and his game as Kobe did. Uh, but that to me is and that's something I always highlight again, too, that when you think about or consider why they didn't get along, it's not just about who had the ball or who should take the most shots or who the offense revolved around. Those things all mattered. But to me, I always thought that the biggest divide between them was the fact that Kobe uh, had this maniacal work ethic and was solely focused on just being the greatest player he could be. And that caused him to have less respect for Shaq and Shaq's demands for the ball and Shaq's demands for his, uh, you know, the role that he, he, he had because Shaq didn't seem to work at it as hard, at least in Kobe's eyes. Well, well Shaq, when, when properly motivated, I guess you would say, was absolutely amazing. So I was looking yeah. back at the, uh, at the final stats from 2000 to 2002 when they won the three straight championships. So in the finals those years, plays 15 games in the finals. He averaged almost 36 points a game, over 15 rebounds a game, shot 60% from the floor, won the MVP every single year in the finals, and the team went 12 and 3. Yeah. So I mean, like it, when he was when he wanted to be on, he was like few players ever to play in the NBA. He and was, in that one, yeah. the finals against the Nets, they had Todd McCullough guarding him, <laughs> which I was watching the clip of that. It's just hilarious. No offense, Todd McCullough, if you're listening to this, whatever you're doing. <laughs> but do you think also looking back at the um, 
the stats from their playoff runs, the from the three championships, and then even leading up to that. It was Shaq's team at the beginning. And you look at this the stats, Shaq just dominated in the playoffs. His numbers were far and away better than Kobe, but with each season, Kobe kind of crept up on him until eventually Kobe was the leading scorer in the in the playoffs for the team. So do you think that Kobe, Kobe, as you said, already came in with the attitude or the cockiness that he's known for now. But as he started to back it up and eventually overtook Shaq as the team's, you know, primary threat, did that do you think that that had played into the the dissolution dissolution of their of their partnership? I think that every year that passed, that Kobe kept improving, kept growing, kept expanding his game. Um, certainly you know, ramped up the pressure, like it's another, you know, little, little, you know, notch, um, you know, on, on, uh, you know, it's, a, you know, if you've got, you know, uh, like a, a clamp and you're just kind of twisting it just slightly more, slightly more, slightly more, like that's, that's how this is because every year Kobe's feeling that much more, um, you know, entitled is the wrong word. That's got a really negative connotation, but just like I've earned this role. I have worked on my game. I have expanded everything. I, you know, I've, I've got this, this, this phenomenal, you know, baseline turnaround, uh, fadeaway. I've got, you know, uh, you know, there was, there was a time when Kobe, you know, held the record. I think still held, holds the record for three pointers in a game. It was never a great three point shooter, but like Kobe was always adding, expanding, pushing the boundaries. And, you know, in his mind, he's earning that role, but it, it's tough because as long as you have Shaq and especially back in this era when, you know, big bruising centers still mattered when you still had illegal defense and we, you still had hand checking the perimeter and, we, and the game was different and it's not today's three point happy, you know, big men, irrelevant kind of game. Um, you had a guy Shaq who was, as he always said, the most dominant of all time in that vicinity of the basket who could shoot 60% um, and who he couldn't make his free throw. So you had, you know, the down, you know, the fourth quarter was going to be, you know, uh, an adventure, but how do you not throw it to the guy who can score 60% of the time um, unless he was in foul trouble? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, there are times, you know, look, people double team him. They sandwiched him. They put, you know, people front and back or they front him. I mean, they, they, there was all these different strategies to try to take the ball out of Shaq's hands or, or uh, make him less effective. Um, and if you look back at those times, even when Shaq was the leading scorer, there were games, playoff games and series where Kobe carried them. Shaq at once at one point proclaimed it might have been the second championship run where they were playing the Spurs and Shaq said Kobe Bryant's the you know the the best player in the game right now and he meant it because Kobe had just dropped like forty six or something on the Spurs that night and they weren't winning that series without him so you can't diminish they needed each other just as you know Jordan needed Pippen um, just as LeBron needed Wade and Bosh and you know every you know throughout history Magic Kareem and Worthy. The Celtics, I, it's always like this. Um, and so we get too fixated on, well, it was this guy's team or this guy, you know. Yeah, Shaq won three MVP, straight MVP, uh, finals MVP trophies, and deservedly so. They still don't get there without Kobe. You know, the replacement level player at shooting guard wasn't going to get it done, even though they had, you know, some other decent players. Um Right, and just like Jordan probably doesn't have six titles without Pippen. I mean, he does. He doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's it's a really unfortunate, as much as we fixate on Michael as you know this this all time icon, which again <laughs> earned. But um, yeah, he needed Scotty, and you know he also needed you know Paxson and Kerr to make a couple of 
the really important threes and um, he needed Rodman to, to, to clean up the boards and defend Carl Malone and he needed Horace Grant in the previous three. Pe- I mean, um, but so the Shaq and Kobe thing, you know, it, it's, it was a tricky balance, but they always needed both of them. Uh, and there were times if, you know, Kobe was out, Shaq did carry them for a month, maybe while Kobe's hand was broken. And there were times when Shaq was, you know, hobbling around on a sore knee and Kobe went on a string of 35 point games 30, 35 point, I can't remember which, but it was like in February when your Kobe kind of saved the season by going on this incredible streak of games without Shaq. Um, and, you know, which is pretty incredible when you consider that the Lakers had a lot of really solid role players, you know, I mean, you know, guys who we think of as like all time great role players, Rick Fox and Ori and Shaw and, and, and Fisher. Um, but Kobe carrying that team, that, there's not a ton of, 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 you know, talent there. And he did at times. Um, and so at times Kobe's not the one who's not getting enough credit for what he was able to do. And that was, that eventually leads to that breakup because yeah, Kobe wanted his own team. Kobe wanted a team where he was like, Pau Gasol was really important in those, those final two championships he won, but those were clearly Kobe's teams. Whereas the other ones are often regarded, I think maybe wrongly as Shaq's teams. Yeah. And so speaking, we brought up Michael and Scotty a little bit. So if you look back at teams that have three-peated in the, in the NBA, there's only been five separate occurrences and only three since the sixties, the, the two bulls, three Pete's, and then the Lakers. So the only three, three Pete's in the modern era are all coached by Phil Jackson. So of <laughs> course we have to get to the question of, you know, the, the chicken or the egg situation, you know, is, is it that Phil Jackson happened to coach two of the greatest players ever, or that two of the greatest players ever happened to be, you know, happened to play for Phil Jackson, you know, how much credit does, does Phil get specifically with, with the Lakers? If you put that question to Michael, to Scotty, to Horace, to Dennis, to Shaq, to Kobe, to Rick Fox, to Derek Fisher, to Robert Ory, I think almost all of them would tell you that Phil deserves a ton of credit. I, I say that without reservation. I don't think there's a single one of those guys and not just because they feel obligated to, or just because, well, they respect him and they're going to say it just because it's the nice thing to say. No, I think every single one of them having lived through it with him, seeing how he managed the the worst of times, the, the, the tensest of moments, how he managed injuries, how he managed games for that matter. Um, you know, he's, he, Phil doesn't get enough credit as, as an X's and O's guy. He's looked at as well. He's this great manager of egos and that's it. And his staff did all the X's and O's. That's uh, really fallacious um yes he had you know you know tex winner was the technician of, of the offense and you know uh, phil had capable staffs but as people often talk about didn't have much of a coaching tree so it was, it's not like there was like a you know uh you know a staff that was you know um that people would recognize as, as being a bunch of powerhouses they were they were smart guys but they were they were career assistants um and all very good at their jobs but phil was the one who still uh, brought it all together, both in terms of the game management and practices and the general philosophy of what they were doing. And yes, the egos as well. Um, you don't win without talent. And that's, uh, that's everybody. I don't know why this, we always, this always seems to get talked about with Phil. Nobody says, Oh, you know, Pat Riley wouldn't be Pat Riley without, uh, you know, magic and Kareem. Well, yeah, you know, that's clearly the clearly true. And, you know, Spolster doesn't have his championships without Dwayne Wade and LeBron and, and, and Wade and Shaq. Um, and, and pop doesn't have it without Duncan Ginobili Parker, but because people view Phil Jackson in in a certain way, they think that he thinks it's all about him. He is also the first person who will tell you that he he needed those players, but it's never asked that way. People just 
you know, they like jumping to the conclusion, well, Phil thinks it's all about him. I mean, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous notion, but um, it is also significant, however, that Michael didn't win his first championship until he was, what, 29 or whatever, uh, and with Phil as his coach. It's significant that Shaq and Kobe didn't win until Phil got there. It's significant that Kobe, when he won two again, after the, Phil had gone away and come back, he wins again with Phil. Um, and yes, it's important that Phil had Shaq and Kobe and that he had Kobe and Powell, and, and, of course. But um, coaching does matter, especially at that level. And certain coaches wouldn't have been able to handle what was going on between Shaq and Kobe. They might have just thrown up their hands and walked away. They might have decided, I got to take sides. Uh, they might have just you know, botched the entire politics of it. Um, so, yeah, uh, that, that his, his, his approach, um, his confidence, his ability to deal with those situations mattered a lot in L.A. And it certainly mattered in Chicago, too, where, you know, they, you know obviously, had, you know, Pippen refused to go back into a game. They had Rodman, who how many coaches could even have dealt with him? So, yeah, uh, Phil deserves some credit. So, you know, getting back to coaches, so Del Harris was the coach for the Lakers when Kobe and Shaq first first got there. Yeah. So they won 56 games first year, 61 the second. And then the yeah. third year, I think they started six and six, and then yeah. Del was fired. What yeah. what was the whole story behind that? Um, so that's the lockout season in 99, right. the first lockout season. Um, and Del Harris in that offseason – had lost both of his parents. Um, the, you know, there's long lockout that, that stretches uh, into January. Um, and I don't remember exactly what the timeline was, but Del Harris, uh, his, his mother and father both passed away in that off season. And it was really uh, difficult for Del um, personally, obviously, and then professionally exacerbated because he had nothing to go back to. He's waiting for the season to start. And so the thing I'll always remember is that when the season did start, when everybody came back together, and I think I talked to Del even before that for a story, and he said he was dedicating this season and, and, and dedicating, you know, what they hoped would be a championship season and, and Shaq and Kobe's um, now fourth, no, third year together. Third year together, yeah. Um, that he was dedicating it to, to, that he wanted to win a championship. Del Harris wanted to win a championship in honor of, of his parents. And it was something that was very heartfelt. And, and, and Del is that, is that kind of person. So he really felt it. So it was important to him. Um, but the Shaq and Kobe thing was already an issue. And they stumble out of the gate. They're, I think they're six and three initially. So they're okay. They go on a road trip that is a back-to-back-to-back, the kind of thing that doesn't happen except in lockout seasons in the modern uh, era of the NBA. The back-to-back-to-back, I believe, was Seattle to Denver and then back to Vancouver, which, of course, made no sense in Seattle and Vancouver are like right. you know, five feet from each other. But for whatever reason, that was, you know, that was how the schedule laid out. So – they lose in Seattle. They go to Denver. They lose. They come back to Vancouver, a pretty bad Grizzlies, Vancouver Grizzlies team. They lose again that night. Um, we were waiting a good like 30, 40 minutes or something outside the visiting locker room that night. They're just not letting us in. They're violating every NBA rule there is. Dell has already spoken. There's already rumors that he might be fired. And we're hearing this these voices and one in particular booming through like the cinder block or whatever wall. Of, of this arena up in Vancouver. And it was Derek Harper who, who, you know, if you've ever listened to a Mavericks broadcast or ever heard Derek Harper, you know, Harper's got this really low, you know, baritone voice. Like you cannot help. So when he's raising that voice, like it reverberates. Um, and so they were getting into it, into it with each other in there. Um, and so it was a very tense night and there's all this talk that they're about to sign Dennis Rodman. And lo and behold, we wake up the next day, flying back to LA, we land and they announced they have 
fired Dell Harris and they have signed Dennis Rodman. Um, Not the coach. What's that? <laughs> Not to coach. Not to coach. <laughs> they didn't actually name a coach, by the way, immediately. Right, Burkett coached one game, right? They had Burkett coach, I think, the first two games. Okay. And they were debating between Larry Drew and, and Kurt Rambis as the interim coach. And in the meantime, Burkett was the head coach. I think he went 2-0 or something. Uh, it, it was all very strange. But nothing stranger than going to the forum where they played back then. And they usher us into this, you know, little cavernous back area where, that was big enough to hold this press conference. Del Harris holds a press conference for about a good, you know, half hour, 45 minutes or something. Attended his own firing, by the way. Something that's also very rare in the NBA. <laughs> I've only seen this twice, and I covered both of them. Del Harris and Avery Johnson, when the Nets fired him, Avery attended his own firing as well. Which is a very classy move. I mean, I say it kind of glibly, but it was, it's... That takes a lot. That's not easy. Yeah. Like that, that's that's a really tough situation to be in. And most guys just like, well, that's it. I'm out. Um, you know, you, you're not obligated to come in. Clearly, they've just fired you. You don't. You're not obligated to do anything. But Dell comes in, and uh, I've told this story before. But he's sitting up there. Um, the room is just silent because Dell um, is a little emotional. He's talking about his parents. It's a tough moment professionally and personally now. And um, you, you could hear a pin drop in that room aside from when Dell was, was speaking and everybody was just, the, the, all the media in the room was very respectful of, of, of listening to Dell kind of pour his heart out and what went wrong with this and that and then talking about his parents. And in the midst of all this, this is back in a pre-digital recorder age. Everybody just had these you know, little micro cassette recorders. And so when, a, when, a, when those cassettes get to the end of the roll, you hear this pop because the record and, and play button pop up. So in this otherwise silent room, Dell is talking. This recorder all of a sudden goes snap because it, it, it stopped. And there's a bunch of them on the table in front of him. He looks down and he says, oh, someone's recorder stopped. He stops what he's talking about. He fumbles around, looks, pushes a button, ejects the tape, flips it over, puts it back, hits record, puts it back down, says, now where was I? Wow. <laughs> uh, that was my recorder, by the way. He didn't know that at the time. Um, <laughs> I told him later, um, thanked him. But uh, only Del Harris would stop in the midst of, of, of what was, for, forget any average press conference, the, one of the, the, the most, uh, you, know, uh, you know, just, just emotional and, and difficult press conferences and still had the, the uh, presence of mind and the thoughtfulness to uh, flip a reporter's recorder, uh, tape recorder or tape over to, uh, to keep recording. Um, and then when that re press conference was over, Del left and Dennis Rodman walked in and he had his press conference, which was much different. Yeah, it was the, <laughs> how did the vibe change in the, in that room? I think we were all just friggin' dizzy by that point. Like, I, uh, how do you transition from that? I mean, it's, you know, uh, and the Robin Presser, I don't think, was more than maybe 10 minutes. Um, I don't remember exactly what was said. I'd ha you know, one of these days I'll go back and look at my clips. But um, I, I just, yeah, the vibe changed dramatically. Um and then it was, you know, off on the, the joy ride that was Dennis Rodman. And he was he was actually phenomenal for a couple of weeks there. But then 30 days in, he basically just like flaked out, disappeared. And that was it. They cut him. Yeah. So speaking of the vibe changing. So then, of course, Phil comes in for the next season. So how did the vibe change in the Lakers and, uh, you know, the environment surrounding the Lakers? Did you notice immediately that things had changed? That's an interesting question. Um there's a there's a certain gravity <laughs> um, and a certain aura, of course, about Phil. Um, he just, you know, 
there are a handful of guys in my career who, when they walk in the room, it just feels different. Uh, Jerry West is one of them. Jerry West is incredibly intimidating. Even after you've gotten to know him, there's just something about Jerry. It's not because he's a logo. It's not because he's Mr. Clutch. Jerry just exudes a, a certain, uh, you know, this, this aura about him. Phil in a, in a completely different way. But I just think that he, you know, he commands the room. Phil walks in, whether it's with the players, whether it's with the media, all attention is immediately on him. The focus is there. And, you know, uh, that said, I mean, Phil was, was, you know, you know, hell of a lot of fun to cover because, you know, there were days he's going to be very serious about matters at hand. And there were days where he was going to just going to like mess around with us. And like, he was a, he, you know, he'd be a pretty funny, quippy guy, of course. And he like taking shots at cities and coaches and um, he kept it light. You know, um, I think he knew when to when to play that hand and when to play, you know, you know, the more serious hand. Um, and I think for the players, they knew. Um, you know, there's a, there's a you know saying about this anyway, or just kind of understanding that you know when the coach gets fired, immediately all attention turns to the star or the stars. Like it's all on you now, you know. And Shaq used to always say this. He said, "I know when we fail, it's it's on uh, you know Dell first and me second, or me first and Dell second, or whatever. That's that's how it goes. That's the responsibility you have as a franchise star." And so when Dell got fired, and then you know eventually they you know decide to replace Kurt uh, with Phil, you know. All focus is on Phil because he's Phil, but it's also like, okay, Shaq and Kobe, you, you can't fail under this guy. You know, you may not want to, uh, you know, respond the way you should to Kurt Rambis. You may, you know, have tuned out Dell Harris. You ain't tuning out Phil Jackson walking in here with six rings. Michael's guy. Scotty's guy. Um, so the respect was immediate. The understanding that, that they had no time to waste and that anything less than a championship um, was going to be their failure now. It certainly wasn't going to be on Phil. But they also weren't expected to win the title that first year. All the talk coming in was it takes a year or two to acclimate to the triangle offense. We don't expect to win a championship in year one. We've got, you know, everything was tamped down expectations. Um, and the Spurs had just won the championship in 99 with Duncan and Robinson. And so they were favored coming in. And, you know, the Trailblazers were really good at that time. And the Kings were starting to, to become a really good team. Like there were other teams that had the, the focus and Shaq and Kobe had flamed out so spectacularly a couple of times. People weren't expecting a championship. People weren't expecting 67 wins. Um, and Kobe then set out the first month or so with, with the broken hand. So uh, that one, none of us saw coming. Is, is, there, yeah, is there a certain point when, when you actually realize, oh, this team really does have what it takes, like not just to win a championship, but to run off three in a row like that. Is that something you can ever pre predict? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, if you, you know, we always look at these things, we look back and it seems like there was no other outcome possible, but at the time, no, because the Shaq Kobe issues aside, this was a team where every year, Fans, media, we're always like looking at them going, I don't see how these guys are going to win because Derek Fisher at, at point guard, come on, that guy's not a starting point guard in the NBA. He can't keep up with Damon Stoudemire. He can't keep up with John Stockton. He can't defend Mark Jackson. He can't, like, everything was always about what Derek Fisher couldn't do. It was about what Robert Ory could. Robert Ory, that guy, he was a small forward in Houston. He's a three point shooter. He can't defend Carl Malone. He can't deal with Sean Kemp or Vin Baker. He can't deal with Tim Duncan, Garnett. Uh, Rashid, like the power forwards were murderers row back then. Um, and so every year fans were clamoring for them to replace Fisher and Ori. It was, the, that was the talk of talk radio all the time. And every time you did back in the day, you know, newspapers would always do, 
those um, uh, position by position breakdowns of every playoff series, and then you check who had the advantage, you know, center, power forward, small forward. And Shaq and Kobe would get the check mark on the Lakers side, and the other three checks would always go to the opponent at point guard shooting or at point guard, small forward, and power forward. Um, the bench was often a check mark for the opponent. The Lakers got the check for Phil Jackson as coach, uh, but there were doubts every single time. And as I've pointed out on in other interviews, you know, they're they're you know a hair away from winning one championship instead of three. Because it's it's game seven against Portland, down 15 points in the fourth quarter of game seven, they should have lost that game. And then it's you know overtime of game seven on the road against the Kings in 2002. Um, so it, it's that close to it being one championship. And they were dominant the second year. That was the year that they you know they lost only one game in the entire postseason. But year one and year three very easily could have gone the other direction. And then we're not talking about a dynasty. We're talking about all the what could have been. So year two, yeah. I'd, I'd like to get that back to that for a second because that was that was an odd year. Like you said, the, the playoff run was just astounding. I mean, I think they went um, fifteen and one, won eleven games in a row. I mean, they were yeah. just running over everybody. But in the regular season, it was kind of well for them lackluster. They went fifty six and twenty six. And uh, if you look at the stats, like so, the previous year they were the best team in the league on defense in terms of points allowed per one hundred possessions. The next year they dropped to twenty first. Wow. What, what, was there something weird going on during the regular season that year? Was there a lack of motivation because of all this, all this success they had the previous season? Or yeah, it was it's just really weird because you look at it and that's not a team you look at and say they're just gonna run roughshod over the NBA playoffs. No, um, this is where the phrase "flip the switch" originated, I believe. I mean, I'm sure it originated when somebody invented a switch way back when. <laughs> um, I don't know if that was Edison or who, but. Um, in basketball terms, I believe flipping the switch uh, was a Shaq Kobe era Laker thing. Um, and now we talk about everybody, whether they're going to flip the switch. Um, and I think that was largely a Shaq thing uh, because Shaq would come in not quite in shape and have to work his way into shape. And then the Lakers would just be like, you know, ah, you know we're, we're fine. We'll be fine in the playoffs. And and I think there was. I think there was this, this sense with them, especially once they won the first one, and, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe even more so if they won the second one, that, we know what it takes. We know how to do this. But 82 games is a long, long season. That's all. You know, it's hard to do what the Warriors are doing right now and uh, decide you want to obliterate everybody every night and give it give it everything you've got, which is why what the Warriors have done is so impressive, because I've seen teams kind of skate through um, and that's not what they're doing. So with the Lakers, it was they were always thinking ahead. And it's hard. You know, Phil's always about being in the moment. That's a big Phil thing. Be in the moment. You'll hear Kobe talk about being in the moment. It's something he learned from Phil. Um, it's it's tough. It's tough to like treat that mid-January game against the Milwaukee Bucks as the most important thing in the world when you're thinking about how are we going to beat the Kings in May. Um, and then, you know, you bring in some injury issues. You bring in Shaq's, you know, uh, kind of fleeting motivation and, and his, you know, you know, conditioning issues at times. Um, you know, uh, you think about you know the fact that Shaq only won one MVP in that run, regular season MVP. And we think, my God, how did he only win one MVP in his entire career? Shaq will blame us in the media, but some of that was was him not living up to the expectations that he himself had had established. But, you know, he had established a certain level of, of, of dominance. And when it looked like he was either dogging it or not quite dedicated or you know, waiting to flip the switch, 
that that uh, that a lot of that fell on him. And there might have been other personnel things that it, that year. Uh, now that you bring up Justin, I don't. It's hard to remember. I don't. I don't know what else could have gone wrong that would have dropped them defensively that far. But uh, I, I I wouldn't have even re- have realized that without looking that up myself. Okay, so maybe let's try to put a bow on this entire podcast here. We'll put you on the spot a little bit. So, I hope it's not late. Hope it's not Shaq Kobe Lakers against the current Warriors. But no, well. <laughs> So Howard Beck gets to pick one team as the greatest dynasty of all time. Ooh. Who is that? Which team does Howard Beck choose? Wow. Greatest dynasty of all time. I mean, I guess we have to start with what the definition of dynasty is, too, because, you know, like the Heat go back to back with LeBron and, and Wade and they, they go to four straight finals. But I don't think we're going to call them a dynasty. And I don't think we're going to call the, the Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, Pistons, the bad boys, uh, a dynasty for two in a row. Um, right. So if you're talking about three, then you're down yeah. to five, five squads. Yeah, well, it's like the '50s era Lakers, or the '60s Celtics, the yeah. um, '90s the Bulls had two of them, and then of course the early 2000s yeah. Lakers. Right. Yeah, so then, do you do you include like the '80s Lakers with Magic and Kareem that won? Right. Oh no, they, they didn't run off three in a row. They had right. statistically the '86 '87 Lakers had the highest offensive rating ever in this in the regular season and the playoffs. Wow. And that's, that's just one phenomenal. thing. One thing about the Lakers. Um, kind of a side note, the Lakers to me more than any other team seem to be even more than Boston or when they're playing, especially in the big games, they're playing against their opponent and like their own legacy. Yeah. The Lakers are held to this standard of of their own past more than, more than any other team. So we can even debate which, which Lakers dynasty was the best and still go back and forth on that. No, that's a, that's a great uh, point, Chad, and, it, and it's interesting, too, because that's what the Lakers are up against, say, right now. Like, they're not allowed to have a period like this. You know, other teams are allowed to have this rebuilding where every year they try to get free agents and they don't, and they miss in the draft, and they just kind of mutter, you know, muddle along until they finally strike gold again somewhere. But the Lakers aren't allowed to. Every year that passes that they're not in the playoffs is a tragedy of, of epic proportions, and everyone's freaking out, and it's they've lost their luster. They've lost their mystique. They just, they, they're up against that all the time. And it, it's not really a fair standard, but it's the standard they set. Just like it wasn't fair to hold Shaq to the standards of his best season when you're talking about MVP, but hey, it's the standard you set. Um, so it's a really great point. Uh, comparing dynasties is tough uh, because as we know, you know, eras in, in, in the NBA have such drastic differences, not just rules, but you know, the size of the league. I mean, it's hard to look at the back of the 50s Lakers or 60s Celtics and not think, okay, but there were like eight teams. Exactly. Yes. You have like multiple Hall of Famers. You have this, this, you know, tiny uh, pool to to emerge from. Um, It was just different. So I'm going to dismiss those. Also, I wasn't alive for most of those. So um, I'm going to, you know, uh, (laughs) let myself be a prisoner of my own generation. It's the 90s Bulls, I think, um, because it's not two three-peats. It's six championships in eight years. Although I think if you look, the only well, not I mean, this is a pretty big only, but Jordan and Pippen, I believe, are the only two guys that <laughs> right. on both of those teams or totally, you know, those three right. Teams. Totally fair, but given that basketball is a game that revolves around you know one or two tr- transcendent players, and also right. uh, only involves seven to eight guys who are really important in a rotation, I think two is a large enough you know contingent plus Phil Jackson as as the coach that. Um, I consider that those are two three-peats with two fairly different squads. But to me, that's six championships in eight years um, is, is just absolutely stunning. And, you know, you wonder about, well, if Jordan hadn't retired and stepped away for those two years, what would they have been? Um, Sam Smith, you know, the great reporter for the Chicago Tribune for many years, 
Sam and I have talked about this and he has said, you know, because people say, well, would they have won eight in a row? And Sam says, no, they would have won six out of eight, whether it was six in a row and then fallen off because they would have just fallen apart health wise because of the, 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 the grind. Um, he thought six was the number regardless of whether Jordan retired, whatever it was, six and eight years is absolutely stunning. That is by far the most impressive run that any franchise has had since the 60s Celtics. And, you know, the, the Lakers were great in the 80s and the Celtics were great in the 80s, but nothing like what the Bulls did in that eight year span in the 90s. Um, so I, I'm going to I'm going to give it to them. Those teams were phenomenal. And, and you know, that that Jordan Pippen core, uh, that's that's the dynasty is those two and Phil together. Yeah, I mean, you know, talking about the 60s Celtics, so they won eight in a row, but they had to win 17 playoff series to win those eight titles. The Bulls, to win two fewer titles, had to win 24 playoff series. Yeah, that's another Yeah, it's a gr- another great point, Justin, that, yeah, the playoffs got longer. Playoff series, you know, well, I think it was like also like a best of three opening round back in the right, 60s. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, in the 90s, it's best of five opening round, but then you've got a best of seven semifinals, a best of seven conference finals, best of seven finals. So, yeah, more games. Um you know, better competition, uh, more teams. It's more more bruising games too. Because looking back on these Lakers teams, you see the battles they had with um, Portland and Sacramento, where they just beat the hell out of each other. Yeah, like those whole times, just just beat up on each other in the ways that you know players couldn't do today without getting suspended. Yeah, I don't know <laughs> if I can. I don't know if I can argue. I could take a contrarian, you know, Skip Bayless viewpoint and try to argue, but the. <laughs> It's it's really tough to argue against those Bulls not being the the best dynasty ever. Yeah, and, and Justin, the Justin may have some Justin may have some crazy numbers that he can back up an argument, but but I don't. Well, I'm not. I mean, I, the numbers would agree, so I'm not going to disagree with either of you. I would choose the the Bulls as well. Yeah, they were they were phenomenal, and it's it's again pre social media era. It's it's hard. Like there are no vines of those old teams you know uh there's plenty on youtube i'm sure but it, it's i think it's gotten you know the distance from it i think it's made it hard to appreciate it'd be really fun actually to just go back i've never done it to go back and and watch uh some of those series um from back then they were as big a rock stars then as the warriors are now um and the lines they had outside hotels waiting for autographs um the way they were treated on the road or when they went abroad um those bulls teams were at a, at a whole other level and and even by those by the standards of that time period of the 90s compared to the 80s, as much as the Showtime Lakers we, we think about so fondly as these great stars, that was when the NBA was still trying to get in, getting its traction and, and you know getting getting all that forward momentum in, the, in that Magic Bird era. So the, the, by the time the Bulls come along, uh, the media attention, the uh, you know just the the you know the ability to be the stars that they were, and then of course Jordan's breakthrough on the commercial side. That, that was the first team of its kind, uh, as, as we understand, you know, these, these teams that, you know, transcend the game and that become, uh, you know, icons both on and off the court. Yeah, but do you think, do the Lakers teams that you covered whenever, if someone asks you to list the best teams of all time, do you, do you throw those teams in there? Do they pop into your head? fairly soon what i mean what's their ultimate the ultimate mm-hmm. legacy if that lakers empire in particular because even with us when we started talking about it the first thing we went to was kobe and Shaq hating each other you know, <laughs> it, and there, there has to be more to it or maybe that is their legacy that is you know two guys that butted heads but somehow found a way to to win in spite of themselves 
Yeah, no, I mean, there's that part of it that's weirdly to their credit, right? I mean, they they created the insanity, but they overcame the insanity that they created and won three straight championships and could have won a fourth. Uh, quick uh, other tangent here. I think they should have. If Carl Malone doesn't get hurt that year, I'm still convinced to this day they would have beat the Pistons in 2004. And that's not to diminish anything that that Pistons team did because that team was incredible, but it didn't have the transcendent stars. Uh, it had guys who became all-stars, but um, – if Carl Malone is not hobbled, I think Rick Fox was hurt too. They were just, they were down to like, you know, the, Shaq and Kobe were not only like running for the door away from each other, but, you know, Peyton wasn't really on board with the triangle. Carl Malone, who was the glue of that team, was hobbled. Uh, they were down to like Devin George and Slava Medvedenko trying to to deal with, you know, Rashid and, and Rip Hamilton and everything. Like it was, it, every, every, year has its asterisks. So I'm not going to play the Cleveland Cavaliers fan card uh, the way that they tried to asterisk the Warriors championship last year. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying as somebody who saw that, that Lakers team up close, what happened in the 2004 finals was at, at least as much about the Lakers imploding. Um, Kobe and Shaq just finally they, being at the end of the rope, knowing that this was it. As soon as this was over, they were done with each other forever. I think they knew that. Um, Phil ready to walk away too. All those things factoring in, plus, as I say, Carl Malone going down early in the season and then never being himself again, as impactful as he was, as dominant as they were that first month and a half. Um, it could have been four championships in five years, and then we would look at them still at another, a, a different way. We would say, well, they had a three-peat. They won four in five years. Now you're starting to elevate them on that dynasty list um, again because a fourth one matters. Um, and I don't think the Shaq and Kobe feud – takes away from the dynasty. I don't know if maybe it enhances it a little bit. It colors it. It makes people look at it a, a little bit askew, but they still did something that, as you've already noted, only one of the team in the modern, in modern times has done with the bulls in terms of, of winning three in a row. And as close as, as much as I'll point out that it was very, very close to only being one out of, out of three instead of three in a row, they still did it. They still held off the blazers in that game seven. They still, you know, knocked out the Kings in an overtime of game seven. Um, they still, you know, won the tough games that they had to win, and they did it while sometimes not really liking each other. Um, so, it uh, where do they rank? I mean, I don't know. It, it's 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 hard to say. Having we're it, it's having not lived through all of the other ones, the '80s Lakers, uh, the '80s Celtics, whatever. It, it's sometimes hard to compare. You only see one team really up close as a beat writer, and, and so you have a, a different um, appreciation for it than you might for other teams that you didn't see. All right. Well, with that, let's uh, let's take a cue from the Lakers. And even though we we just accomplished something great here, overcoming our personality differences, we're gonna we're gonna walk away <laughs> into the sunset. We overcame Google Hangout. That's what we overcame. We overcame Google Hangout problems. <laughs> we overcame Justin definitely being the Kobe of the group, the the cerebral grumpy one. I'm the Shack. Howard's Phil just because of the beard. <laughs> but Howard, thank you, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. Be sure to um, read Howard's stuff on Bleacher Report. Follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow. If you're an NBA fan and you aren't already following him, you, what, what's wrong with you? Also, be sure to check out our blog at blog.statmuse.com. If you download it on iTunes or elsewhere, we're going to embed a lot of the stats that we talked about and some of the video clips that that pertain to what the, these Lakers dynasties that we're talking about. So. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Howard. Please join us again next time for the next episode of Stat Stories. Stat Stories.